Live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, it's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. Welcome, welcome everybody to the St. Louis Realtor Podcast, live from the Herman London Real Estate Group. I'm your host, Adam Cruz, here with my co-host, Shannon St. Pierre, Realtor Extraordinaire. And we're very excited for today's topic. We're going to be talking all about foreclosures and distressed properties. And we have Ben Nichols with Nichols & Associates Real Estate. Welcome, Ben. Hi, guys. Thank you for being here. We're super excited to have Ben because as long as I've been in real estate, Ben has been a foreclosure expert. Would you call it foreclosure and distressed property expert? Sure. That's a large part of our business. About 70% of our business is bank-owned or institutional-owned. Okay. And so we are, we want to just ask you all questions today, all about all about the process and where these come from and interesting stories and, and all that kind of stuff. So the, the reason I think this is a hot topic for us as realtors is because people are always saying, I want to buy a foreclosure. Okay. Right? And they always they, they say it. And I think when they say that, they mean... I want to get a good deal on a property. Absolutely. Right? Hand in hand. And so I'm like, well, there's a couple different ways that you can get a good deal on a property, but a foreclosure at least always seemed like one of those, and we'll kind of get into if it still is that or not. But if you don't mind, Ben, would you just start by telling us just a little bit about yourself and your history with real estate? Sure. I've been licensed since uh, 05. Um, I'm the broker owner of Nichols and Associates Real Estate. We're kind of a small but mighty firm, if you will. Yes. Uh, I close in the in the range of usually 120 or 130 transaction sides a year, sometimes wow. a little better. Um, my, uh, my brother, Brian, came on as our uh, buyer's agent extraordinaire. He also uh, focuses a little bit into the commercial arena as well. Uh, so he's, uh, he's very talented with that. So Brian uh, saw you and having fun and having success, and he's like, I got to get into this. You know, he was my general contractor for some rehab projects that we've done. Uh, very talented from a construction perspective, and I focus very heavily on that when I work with buyers as well. Uh, Want to educate and inform as best I can, and uh, uh, he was very talented with that. I saw that he had a tremendous amount of potential. Um, so uh, brought him on, I guess, three years or so ago now, and uh, uh, got him trained, and he's doing fantastic. So. Uh, so now, when you say commercial, do you, are you saying um, bank-owned commercial properties or just commercial? He's commercial-focused in general. general. He's got a number of clients that uh, that he's met and uh, has been passed around that group as well. He's got some commercial leasing. Uh, he's got a couple of large commercial projects under contract right now. So uh, very excited for, for how he's grown and, and uh, what he's got on the books for the future. So. I'm not surprised that you need a buyer's agent because I'm sure that you're getting calls all the time from people you have a bunch of foreclosure listings and other listings too, like you said, (laughs) but you're, what'd you say? The phone rings nonstop. It rings nonstop and you can't be running around town, right? And you don't just want to tell these people, call some other realtor, right? So it's good for you to have a buyer's agent. Sure. And we qualify the leads the same way that you guys do. We make sure that people have uh, proof of funds or are pre-approved respectively. Uh, it's the same process. So, uh, you know, I, I would like to consider it to be a full service type of a perspective as opposed to. Sure. Um, but we do we do filter the leads. We make sure everybody's good to go. And then we show them the properties, uh, you know, same as you guys do any any uh, lead on, on your listings. So how did you get into this? Because I'm guessing you didn't start day one as sort of a foreclosure-focused person, right? Uh, there was a lady in an office... Um, uh, where I was about, um, well, about a year after I started, uh, she was looking to relocate out of state and had a, uh, had a healthy business. Um, we had, uh, discussed, uh, my purchasing her business or taking it on some sort of a referral basis. We were unable to work things out, but in the course of, um, of my learning a bit more about her business, I was intrigued by the, uh, by the whole process. And I said, this is kind of interesting, uh, avenue. And, um, so I started looking into it. I made a lot of applications. This was prior to um, the the uh, foreclosure crisis, if you will. Okay. Uh, when the market was still uh, hot, uh, healthy, uh, healthy. There you go. Um, and um, it was easier to apply, if you will. There are uh, online platforms. I applied directly to banks, um, and uh, business started to trickle in as far as that was concerned. And then when the market uh, started to slip, uh, my name was already on the rolls with uh, with a number of large banks. And then um, 
we answer to asset managers. They're kind of the same thing as the seller, if you will, right. in the uh, in the retail uh, end of the business. And um, it's my babysitter, if you will, on the uh, on the bank's end of things. And I had a number of those people who were recruited by other asset management companies or processing houses for banks overflows. Fannie Mae, uh, Freddie Mac, Bank of America, so on and so forth, couldn't handle the volume of their own foreclosures. Uh, so what they did was outsource those to third-party companies. So I would have some asset managers leave a bank and go to an asset management company. And then I'd meet five or six asset managers uh-huh. in that company, and they would get recruited to different companies. Um, so there's a naughty list and a nice list, and I'm sure that you guys have your own agent list of, of naughty sure. and nice and who you like to work with and who you don't. And We'll never name um, names. No, no, we'll never. We, no, um, we enjoy working with them all. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, but kind of got passed around that, uh, that circle of asset managers, and, um, and uh, it became very difficult to get on with a lot of the banks because as – retail agents' business dried up. They said, well, the money is in REO foreclosures, so how do I start getting these uh, uh, these listings because I'm not getting any retail listings. Right. Nobody's selling. Uh, so the banks made the uh, uh, requirements to entry a whole lot more challenging, if you will. The banks uh, had application processes where you had to have five or six written letters or referrals from other asset management companies or asset managers or bank reps with whom you had worked. So it stopped a lot of the retail agents from just saying, Ooh, I want to sell bank properties. Um, and, uh, and, and it kept kind of the quality there, but they did start to bring people in kind of slowly as more and more asset management companies, uh, grew. Um, when uh, when the foreclosure volume uh, slowed down, and we also had what we refer to as shadow inventory, things that banks just had, frankly, backlogged for years and years. They couldn't get through all of them. Uh, once it dried up and the banks were able to handle the foreclosure volume with their in-house processing departments, uh, a lot of the asset management companies who had popped up to handle that overflow simply went out of business. Um, they, uh, there just wasn't enough, uh, foreclosure activity for them to, to stay in business. So the agents who were left at the end of the crisis, if you will, were the ones that, uh, were likely there beforehand or created, let's call it a stronghold during the, uh, during the downturn in the market. This always happens. We have sort of an agenda plan for our podcast and then we just ask one question and our our guest starts saying so many interesting things and I think we just kind of get thrown off, but I talk a lot, man. Uh, no, I love it. <laughs> I wanted to, uh, I guess make a comment and ask a question sure. if you don't mind. So I remember when, you know, foreclosures are still, there's still a lot of them happening now, I guess. But I remember when the market was, like you said, it was really hard to get listings, retail listings. Mm-hmm. And I think that Agents just thought of you, of the foreclosure listing agents, as doing nothing. Like, you just sit there and you just get <laughs> listings emailed to you, right? It must be amazing. And so I, I think that people don't realize how much work you guys do, A, probably just to get those relationships, but then ongoing as you have the listing, right? And is it, it's been made even harder. Now your asset managers are requiring even more from you. Right, then much probably much more than a normal seller. Like a lot of work. I'm an agent. I feel like it seems like a ton of work on your end, the one listing the um, foreclosure. But I don't know it if it's any different than the process that we go through. But the process is very procedurally based with uh, online management software, so it's okay. it's kind of task oriented. Uh, got a new property assigned yesterday. I have 24 hours to check it out, report back, and confirm occupancy. Uh, if it is vacant, then we have a preservation company rekey. Uh, change the locks, then we do an interior inspection, we report back. And another task, is there personal property in the house? Um, Is it completely cleaned out? Is it occupied? If so, who is occupying the property? And then there's kind of a flow chart of where we go from there. But it's all very task-based and very, uh, you know, so many days to complete X, Y, and Z. Uh, As far as not doing anything, I'd say the labor load is is the same or slightly greater than than retail, but different in the respect that I have tasks telling me what to do as opposed to having the emotions of different sellers. Yeah, yeah and all the or, variables. Um, Yours are, yeah. I mean, I've got 10 or 12 retail clients at any given time, and, and there are 10 or 12 personalities, and, and you wear 10 or 12 different hats as you're working with 10 or 12 different people, and you know that 
this is going to be a sensitive topic to whomever and, and you juggle that. And I think that's kind of, you know, one of the emotional challenges of real estate in general, right. Is, is kind of, <laughs> but on the bank owned end of things, it's, it's very, do your work, do it on time, have your numbers correct and say yes, sir. Or yes, ma'am. When we ask you to do something. Um, so, uh, so from a, a workload perspective, it's, it's, it's the same, uh, or, or not more, uh, or more, uh, they do email us the listing, so it's kind of a, oh, cool, I got a new one. Here's, you know, Ben, you have a new listing from so-and-so at this property. Um, but that's no different, respectively, than when somebody's brother or sister or somebody from work or church or school or whatever says, uh, hey, Adam, uh, would you help so-and-so down the street? I, sure. I told him you're mm-hmm. a great guy. And, I mean, it's it's the same thing as when you get a call from from a referral, if you will. It just kind of keeps coming from uh, the the same source. So you mentioned two other things. Um, a, you you mentioned property preservation companies, and yes. that's I just I never realized that you're the one who gets to go in before even the property preservation <laughs> company, and that is the most that's one of the most interesting parts of like the real estate industry to me. That seems like a really cool job. It's probably not, but like you could go through all these people's stuff, and I've got a hoarder yes, in me, so you, you do, and that's well, I, I totally I get that. It, it's fun sometimes. It's scary. Um, I am the first point of contact. Uh, we usually get the assignments three or four days after the foreclosure sale. Sometimes they're occupied. Sometimes they're vacant. It's probably 50-50, maybe 60-40. Uh, when they are occupied, I get to knock on the door and say, hi, I'm the guy. Uh, who's going to kick you out? Who's, well, who's here to assist you with relocation. Okay. Okay. Um, but by and, the time we see them, they're always empty. You know, and you guys have... Most of the time, and there's a trend of selling them occupied, which I guess we can talk about. Oh yeah, its sure. Own thing, uh, if you want to make a note of that. But um, the banks will typically offer what they call cash for keys or relocation mm-hmm. assistance. Mm-hmm. Very simply, it's less expensive for a bank to pay someone to move than it is for them to have ongoing taxes, ongoing insurance, loss of that money that they have invested while they're evicting. Um, the chance of having. Um, uh, citations from uh, municipalities for, you know, people have checked out and they're not cutting the grass anymore or um, fines and fees associated with HOAs. Uh, MSD is probably racking up because they're done paying that, plus the attorney costs, plus the court costs. So they've got all of these ongoing costs during the eviction process. It's easier for them to say, hey, here's a couple thousand dollars. Um, we want you to be out in a 30 day period. Sometimes it's six weeks. Sometimes it's two weeks. Usually it's about 30 days. Usually it's about $2,000, uh, varies bank to bank and property to property investor to investor. Um, what the bank requires in return for that $2,000 is that the property is left in broom swept condition. So they're still using that term broom swept. Yes. So that's kind of the, the universal sort of a, now define uh, that because I think we all have to. So nobody has to get on their hands and knees and scrub anything, but if a broom would sweep it, it's got to be swept. So all um, personal items and articles removed. Correct. Just the house. Fixtures have to remain, furnaces and so on and so forth, and appliances, uh, light fixtures, et cetera. But, um, and depending upon the, the person's situation, if somebody's been in the house for 30 years and they've got 30 years worth of stuff, nine times out of 10, they're probably not going to participate in the program they're going to take the stuff that they want to take and let the bank clean it out um i hate to think that someone's been living there for 30 years and then they're getting foreclosed on too. Time. That's I, terrible. it's very sad and mm-hmm. we, we see a did they just refinance at some point or you know how are they like ending up in that situation any number of situations we've done reverse mortgages oh uh, i feel like i'm seeing well. more and more of those which is a really weird thing so no we do see a lot of the reverse mortgages they have kind of an interesting perspective as far as uh, pricing, um, they are a fixed price type of Yeah, it's a non-negotiable. So they have uh, a licensed appraiser come out, and the appraiser says, um, hey, the uh, the appraisal value is this. And a lot of times we have to be very frank with the appraisers that, dear sir or ma'am, uh, when you look at this property, I need you to understand that this is a reverse mortgage, and where you appraise this is where I have to list this for 90 days. So if you think that the seller is going to take offers or reduce the price or change the price, they're not going to. If you say $100,000, if I get $99,999, they are not going to take it. And the appraiser usually goes, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't really know that. And it's not my intention to say give the property away or bring the price in low, 
but I want a realistic value. A lot of the appraisers are trying to, in my opinion, kiss up to the banks or show off to the banks and say, uh, my values are a little bit higher and they push. Um, They're not on. doing anyone any favors by doing that, basically. Well, it's even the, the bank, I mean, that you would have with any one of your retail clients. Um, I mean, what's the term buying a listing? Uh-huh. You know that, uh, uh, that there are three or four other agents that are, uh, interviewing for a listing and you say, Oh no, I can get you way more money than that. Right. You're doing a disservice to that client by sure. giving them a false value. And I, I really think that the, the appraisers in some fashion will, will do that. That's not all of them and it's not on every property, but, um, but back to the, uh, the, I guess, process, if you will, um, the bank will offer them cash for keys, relocation assistance. If they take it, they'll have their 30 days. We do a walkthrough. Uh, we trade, uh, well, it's a check actually, but, um, and, uh, but half the time we actually have to float that money. And that's the other thing I think that, um, uh, that agents don't know about the REO, uh, business is that, uh, banks typically don't allow utilities, uh, back taxes, uh, gigantic MSD bills, things like that to be saved up and paid from their proceeds on the HUD. Same as we would with, you know, any, any seller with a, uh, on the retail sector that had a, a lien or a judgment or whatever, it just comes out of their proceeds. Banks have a separate account from which they pay uh, all of the, the extra items, and we get to pay for it. You as the listing agent are paying for that. Correct. And I've so heard you of have that. to float that until when? Like um, all those fees, MSD, any liens, back yeah. taxes. I think you've had to put up like offenses and stuff. You've had to do all sorts of crazy stuff. Oh, sure. At any given time, I've got thirty-five dollars or $40,000 out. Something like that. And when do you get that money back? Uh, so after it's paid, and I've got a couple, I've got to hit MSD and the uh, and the city of Pine Lawn when I leave here today to, to pay $1,000 or so worth of whatever. Um, and then when I get back, um, my staff will submit for reimbursement. Okay. Some banks will get it back to me in two or three weeks. They're great about it. Other ones, I might have to wait two or three months mm-hmm. to get that money 90 back. 90 days up to. Um, and then, um, you know, if there's a $10,000 sewer bill, and they'll say, wow. go pay it. And I kind of have to say, well, mm-hmm. okay, here you go. And, uh, and I float that money until they, they pay me back. Okay. Um, so that's uh, kind of something else that differs a little bit from, from retail. And, you know, if I've got a client out of town and they have to have some $700 thing done, sure, I'll do that on the retail basis. You guys probably would too. But, I mean, it's every single day that, uh, you know, that, You're we're, paying that out. we're paying out and, and – um, I go to the bank and I'm like, wow, look at this deposit. And I'm kind of like, but it's all my own money <laughs> that I'm getting cut back from the banks. Um, so, um, uh, so then we take over the property. If it is found vacant, uh, we call the Reiki guy. He, uh, he breaks into it for us. Sometimes the windows are open, so I'll climb through the window every now and again just because it's easier than another trip back to the house. Mm-hmm. Um, take pictures of everything. Uh, take pictures of everything in the house. Um, are you allowed to take any of the stuff that's in there? Um, yes and no. So a lot of the banks will have, um, a cutoff of two or $300 is usually what it is. If we deem that there's two or three, some of them are 500, but they've gotten more and more conservative of personal property value. Meaning if we had a garage sale today, is there more than two or $300 worth of value? And that's, I think an attorney driven type of a thing where they'll say this person could come back and cause legal trouble because we disposed of their items in excess of two or $300. If there is personal property, we report it back as there is personal property. We take, uh, photographs of what's there and not like detailed, like, you know, here's all the stuff but in this room. Maybe the more valuable stuff. Yeah. yeah. Just, the here's a VHS copy of Forrest Gump. Like. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's 50 cents. And, um, but, um, but every now and again, there'll be, you know, flat screens left on the wall and, and, uh, some furniture items that like we'd come back for, like, we're not leaving that when we go, we'd at least put that on Craigslist. You know, mm-hmm. that's not something so you, that do you sell. Behind. So do you sell off stuff on Craigslist and then who gets the proceeds? Well, no, I'm just, I'm saying that the occupant would. Okay. So, um, okay. So you don't like, ever no put anything on Craigslist. No reasonable person would, okay. would like, so what's left the, the stuff that I, I find personally valuable is like charcoal starter. And yeah, an oil lamp, say. And yes, I would love so an oil you, lamp. I know. You know, like stuff that stuff that I would use on a functional daily basis. Yeah. So um, if you found an oil lamp or a charcoal starter, would you just say, "Oh, okay," and take it? 
um, once the personal property eviction goes through, mm-hmm. the cleanout crew comes in and they throw anything away that that is remaining in the property. So can you call point, Adam and legally, I when you do this? Um, <laughs> just for fun. Just if one, you guys want to check times. it out someday? Sure. No, yes, that's fine. Just for fun. Um, sometimes it's a house full of stuff. Sometimes it's an estate type of a thing. Uh, we deal with all methods of how. And then the valuable stuff that really is like maybe over two hundred dollars. Like say there's some. You I've know, never really seen nice... anything like awesome. Okay. I mean, I'll say it like, like that. Like flat screen never... TV or something. What do you do with that? Because that is... I mean, there's been like cars left in garages and stuff, hasn't, hasn't like there? Occasionally, yeah. I've got a bass boat at a house in, in South County now. It's not worth anything. I, it, it would be at the lake with me right now if it were. Uh-huh. But, um, but after the personal property eviction, they toss everything that, that's remaining. Um, I'll grab like trim from the basement that you know I can use when I rehab my next apartment or whatever it might be. So little stuff that saves me money at Home Depot and Lowe's and... Uh, another thing that I'll do is I have a shed in the yard where I've probably got 150 rakes and shovels and hoses and garden utensils and so on and so forth. And when I have first-time home buyers, their closing gift is... Use shovels. A trip, a trip to your shed. Well, when you say it like that, like that makes it so... Um, I actually, that would be an awesome thing. I come to my free shed mud. and yeah, pick, so a, pick up things. I, I think that I that's a really cool thing. I show up with a truckload of, of, of one of every type of a that's cool. shovel or yard utensil. I actually think that that's awesome. It's, it's stuff that they're going to have to buy and they're kind of like... And they're excited to get it. Get it. They don't care if it's used. I don't know that I've it's met... It's a shovel, man. But, yeah. you know, um, nobody cares. Ben, let me ask you. You called it a personal property eviction. Is that... Same You're using the word eviction. That's the sub- same thing. You have to go through the courts and do yeah, all this stuff. The- so it's it's an how, easier how process, if you will. Um, and I, you'd have to ask an attorney how and in what way it is shorter. But I would imagine it has something to do with with less notice because we are mm-hmm. uh, evicting things as opposed to verifying the identity of occupants. Uh, I, but I can I can give you the name of somebody and to having chat with to give them that. time to find. We've them. just had so many like on evictions that we've done as property managers here, we've had different attorneys give us different advice. Some of them say you have to throw everything away that day. Some of them say you have to put it in a storage unit. Some of them are like, do whatever you want, you know, and storage mm. is the way to get around that personal property eviction. Well, you can time frame. you can move things into storage if you want to. That was a big thing 10 years ago. Um, and then you've got possession of the property. If the person comes back within X days, then there they are. Then, then they... And then your things are here and you pay the storage fee, you know, for those things. That way you're not, and from a property management standpoint too, your people are looking at it like, Hey, this, this thing, my vacancy rate is going up and I want this thing rented and mm-hmm. we need to get it processed and cleaned. And I've got all this downtime and I'm losing money. And, um, so it makes more sense in that particular respect, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to get everything moved out. But from the bank's perspective, they'll use the same foreclosing attorney and the same eviction attorney that they would use to, uh, evict someone from the property and they simply file uh, the same type of an eviction against the belongings that are in the home. Uh, I have two of them on Monday. One is in eviction of a human and uh, and the sheriff called yesterday actually. He goes, we're going to start at this one and we're going to drive right down to the next one. And, um, and one of them is just personal property. The, uh, the house has been locked up for a month and a half while we wait for the court to do their thing. Um, the uh, we're allowed to change the locks on a secondary door when there is an indication of personal property. So that's to allow the individual the ability to come back to get their thing. So the power's off. We've determined the property to be vacant. Um, we're going to go in and see if there's anything of value. Oh, hey, let's assume that there is something of value. We'll secure a secondary door. That person can use their keys and lock to, to get in to get their things, respectively. So on the date of that personal property eviction, we show up with the sheriff same way that we would evicting humans. Um, and we'll open the door and they'll say, well, no humans are here. And they literally turn over possession. Uh, it used to be that we would put things out on the lawn. Um, during the foreclosure crisis, it was happening so much that some municipalities freaked out with St. Louis County. And now I believe St. Charles Jefferson St. Louis and the city. And I don't quote me on it. I know at least the city and in the county, we can't set things out on the lawn anymore unless they're gone that day. Okay. Um, so, um, which when you do that, you're kind of just like doing the neighborhood. Like you've had to deal with this property for so long. Here's a free couch or something. You know, I've had a couple of situations actually that, um, 
where there were a couple of estate houses in um, in in uh, let's call them neighborhoods where people needed some extra furniture and and things of that nature. Um, when the cleanout crew comes there, or we're at the eviction, when we would set things out, we would literally have fifteen or twenty neighbors yeah. waiting and saying, "I will take that. I will take that." Mm-hmm. And it's great for the cleanout crew because they only have to carry it halfway to the truck. Yeah. And when they do go to the dump, they're paying by the pound to uh, sure. by the pound and by volume to. And to it's a shame to throw away something that someone would want. You know, same or bring, could use. Yeah, with my shovels and my rakes and my right. and so forth mm-hmm. and. And, um, you know, and I'll grab bags of fertilizer, too, because I hate to see something gigantic concentrations of fertilizer going right back into the ground and into landfills and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I would rather see things put to, to good use. We can't let people in the house to look around. Um, but if somebody's out there waiting, you know, on, on the way out, stuff out. That's um, then, then people will grab stuff. And, and that's fine if that coffee so table helps. Talking about occupancy and, and seeing if it's um, occupied, do sure. you ever have to deal with squatters? Uh, occasionally. And um, is it harder to get them out? Uh, so if somebody's occupying the property illegally when we are assigned the listing, mm-hmm. uh, then they have to go through the process if they want to be stubborn about it. Then they are, uh, they're referred to as unknown occupant. Um, so, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so who are the mortgagors and unknown occupant is the way that it is is filed. Because uh, the person's probably never going to talk to us and tell us who they mm-hmm. are and so on and so forth. So that's how the, uh, the attorney has to file it. Once we've taken possession of the property, um, we put, you'll see the no trespassing signs in the window. They're usually on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Um, there's some legal ramification of, of uh, it's the reason when you see no trespassing signs, they say posted no trespassing. There's some legal reference to it having been posted or the property having been posted whereby you entering the property you are now trespassing as opposed to squatting. In that case, I just have you arrested. Okay. Okay. Um, but I do show up every now and again in places where there's a high volume or, or potential for squatters. Um, I'll, I'll open the door and I'll yell hello uh, and make well, some Well, we do noise. that anyway in a, in a weird way. I don't know why. I always yell realtor. Yeah, yeah, which is I learned from him. I open the door. I'm like, realtor. You know, like if you hear somebody moving around and occasionally I will, and then I'll just kind of go back to my car and I'll call the police and I'll sit there and then I just, I'll let the police show up and deal with it. And, um, I involve the police whenever I see obvious signs of occupancy on a home that should not be in the dead of summer. Every window in the house is open, but the power's off. That's an obvious indicator that you know, somebody's in there and I don't even get out of the car. I just, I call the police. I say, I suspect someone, uh, of, of being in there. They'll walk through with me. Um, uh, in certain areas I do wear a bulletproof vest. I do carry a weapon. Um, that was frankly at the repeated advice of the sheriff and, and I was stubborn about it for a number of years and they just kept saying, when are you going to start carrying and mm-hmm. where's your vest? And, and I was kind of like, you know what? They have guns and they have vests and they do this every day. And I've been warned enough time by times by people who do this for a living that I should I should do it. Um, Next time I see you, you're going to be dressed like Dog the Bounty Hunter. I yeah, know. No, like, oh my yeah. goodness. That's how I feel. I would uh, I would really like to ask because I feel like at some point in this podcast we have to ask a simple question, which is what is a foreclosure? Right. I mean, we're just talking about it. We're kind of getting deep into it. We but like, yeah. how does a property get into foreclosure? What does it really mean? You know, kind of sure. let's kind of go to a basic question. Um, the very simple answer is, is that the uh, the mortgage or defaults on uh, their promise of repayment of that mortgage to the mortgagee, which is the bank or lender or lending institution um, at uh, at the bank's discretion. Well, I guess I should take a step back. In Missouri, we're a three-party ownership state, as you guys are aware. So when you have a mortgage on a property, you've got the mortgagor, the borrower, if you will, the person who's living in the house. They give to the bank, the mortgagee, their promise of repayment, which is Mm -hmm. that mortgage document. There's also in the mortgage document that nobody ever reads it closing all the way because it's like 11 pages long and they just sign it. uh, There's a trustee to be named, and that's going to be the foreclosing attorney who would act upon the bank's behalf in the event of the default. Is that a person or a company usually? Uh, it's going to be a, a law office. Uh, okay. Uh, they're of varying sizes. There have been small ones. Uh, I, I represent uh, a couple of small local banks who, who kind of use a one-man shop as far as the, the foreclosing attorney. 
the big banks uh, filter through, um, I, I would imagine, large nationwide conglomerates that sub them out to particular law firms locally. Um, but that trustee initiates foreclosure uh, with the court's notices go out. They uh, send the uh, occupant uh, lots and lots of notices of default. They offer them options of modification. Um, they, uh, they offer them options of getting back on track if the, uh, if the individual is unable to, uh, to do that. Then they proceed with the, uh, uh, the court filings to foreclose. Um, it is a court hearing where simply the attorney says this person has not paid their bills and per the terms of their mortgage we uh, intend to foreclose and the judge bangs the gavel and that's the very, very, very short version of it. This is bef- that's way before the whole courthouse steps sale. Um, so then the, uh, the courthouse, well, the courthouse steps and, and what I think the average person refers to as a sheriff sale because you can buy sheriff and city owned properties at that. And that's a different sort of a thing. Yeah. We hear the foreclosure sale. We hear the courthouse steps. We hear the sheriff sale. Um, they're generally intended to be the same sort of a thing. Any one of us can go in there and buy any foreclosed property period. Mm-hmm. But typically, if the house is not upside down in some fashion, meaning if the individual were have, were able to have sold that property uh, and walked away without having to have the foreclosure, they would have done it. They would have saved their credit. They would have saved the process. Maybe they would have put a few bucks in their pocket. Um, so it's kind of a rare sort of a thing. But if you and I are willing to go to that sale, if we are going to pay off the first mortgage, the court costs, back liens, taxes, uh, and uh, fees associated with the whole thing, um, if we pay off everything outstanding, you or I could go buy any property that we know is about to be foreclosed or, or is to be foreclosed at that sale. Um, and where do those is, sales take place? Uh, at the uh, the courthouse in the county. They're in the place. county in which they are being foreclosed. Correct. Yes. It's not the courthouse steps. It's upstairs by the printer. <laughs> no, isn't it the fourth floor or is it? The- in the St. Louis County in Clayton, it's it's so like you go up the escalator the and go around the corner to the printer. And then how often? I'm not sure about that. I don't know either, to be honest. But I what I guess what your point is is that not so many people are buying at that sale now because the the house is being quote unquote sold for probably more than what it's actually worth, and so then the banks just basically well, the highest bidder. People are buying more or less now, respectively. Okay. Um, but but what the bank does, yes, is buys the house back from themselves. Essentially, mm-hmm. they satisfy their own liens, thus. At the end of the sale, the two parties remaining in ownership are the mortgagee, the bank, and the trustee, respectively. And then we get the assignment from the bank. So, so the mortgagee. If, if you were to buy it, like after it comes in the foreclosure, like at by the printer over there. For you. In that exa- <laughs> example for St. Louis County, though, um, you're paying what the bank actually has had to pay out as well. Or Correct. So you are essentially are they trying to make a profit as well. You're satisfying the mortgage, the taxes. But let's say that there was some property that, I, I mean, I don't know, and I can't think of a scenario, but that, that Adam and I knew that there was really something special about this house that nobody else in St. Louis knew about it. Mm-hmm. Adam and I could go to that sale and bid against one another and bid in significant excess of whatever okay. the so mortgage you, amount like, would be. So how do you find out? If you see a, a notice of foreclosure, what is it called? A notice of, has been filed. For example... I looked at my, um, my husband and I were talking about my first house and we were uh, a few months ago and, um, we were, we were like, oh, look it up, see if anybody, if they resold it or mm-hmm. how, sure. anything of the sort. Then I saw that I've they had that a note. <laughs> I know. Was the default you, notice? Yeah. So you stock your first, it was my first house, right? So you kind of stock it in a way that you just like, that's probably that most, a lot of people probably do. I have a special attachment to it. Um, but I noticed it had a notice of default, default, sure. and I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's going into foreclosure! Oh my gosh, I'm going to totally buy it back. I'm buying this house back, sure. and I really would have." And then all of a sudden, it's owned by a not an acquisition company; it was an investor. So, do okay. they? How do you know when you see that notice of default? Where to even go and when to buy the house back? Because it, I would have bought it. I really would have. Um. Well, you can uh, hit CaseNet online and look up that uh, that mortgagor's information. You can look at the uh, the hearing dates against them. You can track down. Uh, okay, so I'll the just bank call that you. Owns the property. All right, next time my house goes into foreclosure. <laughs> I think if you see house. like on Zillow, um, they I, you know I'm a Zillow hater, but if if you see their foreclosures, 
Or no, is that their mm-hmm. short sales? Their short sales, I think, are just people who had a notice of default filed against them. No, you'll them. see it on Zillow sometimes too. And so they're notice not actually for sale, but those are a target for like, hey, maybe these guys are in trouble and I can buy it from them. So you have that opportunity to buy as a short sale. That's not really as much my focus, but that would be something to avoid the entire process that we yeah. just discussed. Okay. But it, once the notice of default has happened, they're kind of already in the process. It's a notice of list pendants, uh, meaning that the bank has filed documents with the intention to foreclose, foreclose. to the best of my understanding. Okay. So then you said then the bank basically is the highest bidder. They take it back. And then there's kind of like a indeterminate amount of time that they'll it'll sit on their balance sheet, right, as an REO. Mm-hmm. And eventually they'll list with you. Some are probably faster. Some are slower. But- yes, there's a tremendous variance as far as that's concerned. Some of them will package them up. Um, kind of the same concept as a mortgage-backed security where uh, XYZ banker here. Uh, takes their properties and, uh, you know, Delmar or USA Mortgage or whatever. They've got a billion dollars of loans and they send mm-hmm. them to Fannie or whatever right. it might be. Um, the banks will occasionally take non-performing assets and sell them to hedge funds. And the hedge funds will rehab and put into rental programs the ones that they want to, and then they'll sell the other ones. Um, some banks, um, I get the assignment before the foreclosure takes place. They'll send me out to check occupancy pardon me, prior to the, uh, the sale actually taking place. Um, and then the second that the sale takes place, they'll send me out the next day. So there's a, there's a wide variance. I've got one on my boards that the occupant is after the foreclosure suing the bank and it keeps getting continued and continued and continued. And I've had it quote unquote in my inventory for over a year. And wow. it just kind of sits there on the board and I'm like, well, someday I'm going to get an email from the attorney and they're going to say all done great and meet the sheriff and so on and so forth. Um, but it's, there's no telling when that could be. Um, also the occupant, um, I've, I've had a couple where people have fought the eviction itself, uh, where the foreclosures through the bank owns the property, uh, period. And the person just says, I'm not going to leave. And they hire, there have been a handful of very clever attorneys. I, I should say if something ever happens to me, I know the guy that I'm calling uh, to, uh, to, to, to keep me in that house. Cause that attorney kept filing one thing after the other, um, and, just delaying. Uh, and, and the, the intention is very obviously to, to delay. And from the occupant's perspective, I would assume it's the attorney's delaying costs me this much a month in letter mm-hmm. writing and court appearances and rent somewhere else would probably cost me that much more. So it makes more sense for them to just delay it and stay in there. But I think the intention is always that they're going to inevitably have to leave, uh, but but the lawyers will uh, stretch it out as as long as they uh, as long as they can. Um, and I've I've had upwards of a year that that lawyers have been able to to you know get people uh, to, to to stay in that house before the actual eviction is approved. So something that's um, I guess is interesting to me that I've sort of heard of over the years is that people often it's. You know, I, I I hate to say this exactly, but it's kind of like their fault that they're being foreclosed on in theory because they're the ones not paying their mortgage, right? Correct. But people are often mad at the bank for foreclosing on them. <laughs> I mean, and they're almost always, right? It's because it's not my fault that I'm not paying my mortgage. It's you always someone else's fault. N- not always, no. And and as, as a preface, I, I, I want to be very clear that more often than not, someone lost their job. Uh-huh. Or someone got sick. Sure. Or someone lost their job because they were caring for a spouse that was sick. And it sucks, but I'm just saying it's um, still not the bank's fault. Sure. Right? And But so people are mad for whatever reason sometimes. And I guess what I was hoping to hear from you is do people... Do they, are they trashing the house? Is it true that people pour concrete down the toilets and stuff like that? Have you seen that kind of thing? Um, n- not that one, but I have seen a number of, of situations where they'll completely and totally strip the uh, the house on their way out. I had one uh, was on a uh, private uh, street of six or seven homes uh, down by St. Anthony's Hospital off of Schusler, um, where uh, it was a, I think the house is, in fixed up condition, probably in the six hundreds, mm-hmm. give or take something like that, they stole everything. And I and, and not funny, just just from a 
Wow. Just a, wow. Yeah, that's that was. I mean, you're talking light board. fixtures, appliances, oh, and like. No, they they took the wainscoting off the walls. Oh wow. Down to the. Uh, they took yeah. the toilets. They cut out the copper. The uh, all of the duct work, not just not just the wow. furnace. They, so yeah. they, they left have, nothing but a shell. Literally, it, if it were new construction, they just got the drywall up. That's the stage in which they they left the home. They put holes in everything else. Uh, there was uh, the, the tile they couldn't rip up, so they smashed it all. Um, and that's and, a lot of um, work, by the way. But the interesting portion of it is that from the neighbor who was one of the association trustees, uh, he said, I, I knew something was going on there, that they were coming and going late at night uh, from the oh, garage. Yes. And these people were like filling up their cars every night with Stuff. the house. Mm-hmm. I mean, like with the house. Um, and they finally came back. Uh, they had been gone for, for a couple of weeks, and they finally came back and started digging up the bushes in the front yard, wow. which people have family plants. Hey, mom gave me those sure. pastas. I want to, you know, and that's, that's no different than we kind of see that in retail a little bit. Can I dig those up before we list? Sure. Um, but, um, but he was like digging up generic arborvitaes that were in the yard and the neighbor said he came in and, and chased the guy off because he knew at that point something was, was not right. But uh, for frame of reference, I think that house that would have been in the 600 sold in the twos because they had taken wow. so yeah, sure. much out of there. Is there um, something, is there, I mean, is there rules against that? Isn't that kind of like extra, like the bank would go after them even more or, no, or something or no? So the bank's ability to go after them is kind of the same thing as obtaining a deficiency judgment in the event that the bank lost money on the property. So let's say that the mortgage was 100, the house uh, only sold for 80. So the bank can seek a deficiency judgment against the individual for the difference plus their costs and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But it's Do you see that like often? Getting, but I've, I've never once seen it because it's like say, getting really? blood from a stone. I mean, what are you going to do? The people a, never pay. So how are you going to... But it's the same sort of a thing when somebody damages a house after the fact um, is, is that A, find them, mm-hmm. and B, prove that it was done by after them. The foreclo- yeah, prove that it was done by them and prove that it was done after the foreclosure, meaning after the bank became the owner of the property. Um, I mean, that case was hundreds of thousands of dollars, though. That Absolutely. they did and damage, you know, hundreds of thousands. I wonder what they did with all that stuff. You know, um, they didn't donate it to to the restore. I imagine they used it to rehab some other new place that they, well, I don't know, or, or sold, sold it off. Or, yes, yeah. for scrap. So that's kind of like your most memorable story, I guess. From the. But I see. I mean, I bought a foreclosure, and it was they literally ripped out everything they could. All, the only, like the whole kitchen was gone. The only thing left was the backsplash. Mm-hmm. You could see where the cabinets were, but they took the sink. The wires are just hanging out. Like the mm-hmm. whole thing. I guess it's hard to prove whether that was the Nobody mortgages or if it was just like the neighbors it was or something, right? Or yeah, something vandals. The mm-hmm. There's no way to prove that. Yeah, they 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 can't. I mean, the neighbors. The neighbors love to share stories, and, I, and I've heard some very, very interesting stuff from... from uh, I'm sure you always, always have do. choice things to say about the person who lived there and what trouble they were and so on and so forth. And that's not a consistent thing, but it's always, you know, it's always interesting to, to hear what the, the, the neighbors have to, uh, to say about it. But we've had, we've had meth houses, and we've had hoarder houses. And, and, now, how um, do you know if it's a meth house? Because that is something you have to disclose in the state of Missouri. That was a neighbor thing. That the, the and then what do you do with that out. information as a licensed professional? So the neighbor okay. told you, I think it was a meth house, and yeah. you guys acted and, as um, if it was definitely a meth house? Well, we actually we called the city to see if there had been any citations, uh, any drug arrests, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do take that very seriously. I mean, that's a health sure. hazard that you've got to, I mean, you just, as, as a human being, you can't. That's some really heinous stuff that can make somebody very, very sick, just being in the house mm-hmm. where people were using it, not necessarily even cooking it can make you oh, still really? very sick. Yes, very much. Um, so um, uh, so the city did confirm that there was um, uh, some meth history in the house. Um, there's a, uh, a fantastic company called BioAbsolute that um, uh, they're based... Um, I guess you'd call it like Tara Grove South, Chippewa and Kings Highway-ish. Uh, they deal with some challenging environmental situations, murder cleanup, suicide cleanup. Uh, the landlord finds a body in a house, um, mold and environmental remediation, but also meth house cleanup. Um, and I, I know a number of agents that, that use them. They were fantastic. And 
they came in, uh, they did the testing uh, on the uh, on the property, and it, it reads so many. It's kind of like when we have a radon test, mm-hmm. so many picocuries per, you know, whatever the measurement is. Um, but uh, they take samples all over the house, and then they come up with a, uh, a treatment plan, and then they come back in and they test after the fact. Um, the banks typically take that type of a thing very seriously from a position of liability. Uh, they don't want somebody... Coming back and suing them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that type of thing. And then you do have to disclose that. Do you have to disclose that? Or because it's a, you don't provide a seller's disclosure in most foreclosure cases. I want to say in that case, we did anyway and put all of the paperwork in the listing, kind of in the attachment sort Mm -hmm. of a thing, just so that people knew, hey, you know. It was, but it was remediated. If a seller, a retail seller says, oh, well, you know, we had a leaky toilet, but we fixed it and there's no problem since. Well, that's all the consumer's looking for as they read that disclosure. There was a problem. What was it? They fixed the problem. Cool. And there's no more problem. And, you know, we wanted people to be comfortable with that, obviously. So along those kind of same lines, I'm curious about mold. I'm sure a lot of houses that you go into have mold. Mm-hmm. But what? how do you decide when it's bad enough that you make people sign that, like, mold release before they can show it? That's up to the bank. Uh, I tend to be pretty over the top about it when we have a, a report that we submit to the bank. It's kind of our little CMA or mini appraisal. It's called a BPO, a broker mm-hmm. price opinion. Um, and I'll say property has mold. We should disclose mold. Most of them will anyway. Uh, they'll have some corporate sort of a form that says uh, you know, property may or may not contain uh, mold or spores or discoloration. Fannie Mae, for instance, most of the government entities will not allow you to use uh, the M word. Um, I was going to say, how they say can you discoloration? Just... Okay. Because sometimes you go to a house that has it, and sometimes you can't go unless you sign that mm-hmm. that form. And I, I, we had a listing recently where our agent thought there was mold, and so I'm like, well, let's you know get one of these forms and make people sign it before they show it. That's a good idea from a position of liability and. It, you don't know how sensitive people are. There's a reason that our disclosure asks about what pets were kept on the property. Yeah. Cause maybe birds or cats make someone deathly ill and they need to have those ducks cleaned. Uh, so I think from a safety perspective, anytime you encounter mold, really that, that needs to be disclosed. Most of the banks are pretty good about it. Uh, some of them don't care. They just list it. Um, what I will typically do in that situation is that they won't allow it to be in the MLS or public remarks. I'll put it in showing time. And I'll say, Lockbox code is this. If your clients are mold sensitive, please bring a respirator. Okay. And in the feedback, people will usually say, hey, thanks for giving me a heads up on that. You know, they were going to bring their kids to look at I brought house. my respirator. Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> Okay, Ben, can you pull out your crystal ball? Because we'd like to ask you about the future and if there's going to be more foreclosures soon or what we should be expecting. I think we're at a completely normal volume right now it's settled back off Uh, i think the majority of the shadow inventory has worked its way out of the systems uh a lot of the um the hedge funds and investment groups who uh purchase large pools of properties are starting to unload some of them um but i think numbers are are uh normal generally normal and generally even you mentioned twice now shadow inventory is that when a bank is just holding foreclosures on their balance sheet and not listing it? Yeah, it was simple supply and demand. If they dumped every single property at any given time, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and a number of other banks uh, participated in, in holding it uh, holding it back. Uh, you know, if you've got um, 12 months of, uh, of inventory out there, uh, that's going to drop prices fast, 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 fast. So they deliberately held up. Part of it was also for the notion of neighborhood stabilization. And I think that that's something that the government agencies especially took took particularly seriously. Uh, a lot of the banks that were uh, part of the bailout as well, to my understanding at least, um, had some requirements of uh, the rate at which properties could be put back out there because, hey, if we're going to give you this money, we're not going to let you destroy the economy by flooding the property with that many properties. Yeah. So with shadow inventory, are they are they still hiring like a property preservation company to do winterizing and all that kind of thing? Yeah, so that's going to be a standard of any property that's that's in their inventory. Most of that now is subbed out to third party vendors. There are some nationwide companies that sub it out to um, to, to to usually the lowest bidder, or there's a prefix uh, pricing. You know, you get so much to cut a lawn up to point two six acres. So those don't even go through you. Um, 
the smaller banks have us do it, and I've got a couple of companies that that I, I send the work out to, but they also work for those nationwide uh, preservation companies as well. I just hire them directly with the smaller banks. They'll change locks, they'll winterize, they'll cut grass, do board ups. Try to like prolong the life of the property. Do you have a question you want to ask? I've had clients before obsessed with the house. They knew it went into foreclosure. Mm-hmm. Like, can we buy it from the bank? I'm like. I've never had success with that. I don't think there is a process for that. Oh, buying before it gets actually listed? Yeah, and I think it was held by, I think it was Wells Fargo. I'm like, good luck. So the process with Wells specifically. uh, And I don't remember. I think it could have been, I think it was Wells or U.S. But basically trying to buy shadow inventory. Yeah, so they're trying to, I guess, contact contact somebody at the bank and and they're like, this is the house we want. It's right in the neighborhood. It's exactly where we want to be. This yeah, is it. No can case. I buy it? Can I buy it? Okay. I can. So I've never heard of it happening, to, so I just didn't know if it was if I was giving them wrong information. I just said I've never heard of it. Well, let, let me so let me put shadow inventory to bed. That's something that they've been sitting around on for a long, long time. That's not just hey, that house across the street goes into default this month and mm-hmm. it's going to list it three months from now. I wouldn't call that shadow. I, that would be something that was old that they have generally speaking worked their way out. So that's not kind of part of it. Okay. But to answer your question, Shannon, um, their gatekeepers are very, very strong. You're never going to get anybody. Um, the banks typically sub them out to their own REO department. So if you call the bank and say, Hey, this property on such and such street, you're not going to get a human. They're okay. not going to talk to you. And people say very regularly, like I'll talk to a neighbor and the neighbors, again, great sources of information. You know, Hey, if those people moved out, I can't quite tell. The power's still on, but it looks like it's vacant. Neighbors will say, oh, they've been gone for three weeks. That's great. And I'll kind of make up a conversation with the neighbor because you never know. Maybe they've got somebody who wants it. Maybe they want it. Maybe a family or friend, somebody mm-hmm. wants to buy the house. So I always chat with the neighbors and, and they're, they're, they're a generally good source of information. But the neighbors say, well, do you know what they're going to want for the property? Mm-hmm. And that's a fair question, but sure. I'm there on day one. I have no idea at this point. So once the property is cleaned out and we get past kind of the preservation thing that we had talked about, then they go into valuations. Okay. And depending upon the bank, uh, we'll submit what we had talked about earlier, broker price opinion, which is kind of our little version of an appraisal. But it, since we're not licensed appraisers, it's, it's kind of a, a form as opposed to an official document. Some banks will hire a licensed appraiser and they'll compare our values. Some banks will have another agent come up with a, a BPO uh, and if there's a tremendous variance, if I say it's worth 50 and somebody says it's worth 100, they'll order another BPO just to see which one of us was wrong. Um, but nine times out of 10, the values come pretty close to one another. If I say it's worth 50 and the other person says it's worth 55, then they're going to list it somewhere in that range. So now, do speak. they actually have houses appraised? Yes. They, they, and they do will. they go off the appraisal process like or appraisal They'll price? consider the values in tandem. I, okay. I mean, if, most of them will, if there's a big variance between what I have to say and what the appraiser has to say, they'll say, hey, why do you feel that way? And, and maybe there's something that the appraiser missed. And then, again, they might still order another BPO, so they have three values on the table. So I explain to the neighbor in that particular case or to you with your clients is that they haven't even begun the valuation process uh, at that point. The only thing, even if you did get a human, which you're not going to get a human, but if you did get a human... All they have is that mortgage amount that is owed on it, but they don't have any legal fees attached to it. Uh, they don't have any court costs attached to it. They haven't sent it to title yet. They don't have any um, lien information. information that we would go through with any purchaser that we had respectively. So if your people say, oh, I want to call and I'm just, I'm going to find somebody at Wells Fargo to buy this house. No, you're not because there's nothing from title and there's nothing from right. municipal and there's nothing from anybody so that's kind of the process. And then once we get through the valuation process and they have those values reconciled, then they'll go to listing. But it's the same thing. And, and um, we had kind of talked either in prep or in, in, in early uh, on in the conversation, is it people thinking they're getting some sort of a steal um, purchasing a, uh, a bank-owned property? And it's no different than fair market value reigning supreme in, in any other sale uh, respectively, though we did have people call for years and they're like, I want to buy a foreclosure. And we were kind of like, cool, happy to help you. Um, but 
everything is on everybody's phone in five minutes. And so now if a foreclosure is priced less, it's probably because it needs more work. Absolutely. That's the only distinguishing factor between them. And and I suppose if you did analyze all bank or government-owned homes in St. Louis versus all privately owned homes, they would probably sell for a slightly lesser cost per square foot um, because of instances being dragged down like things being damaged or... um, Properties not being cared for and not being maintained. If someone is, let's say, struggling, someone lost their job. Um, they probably haven't put granite in recently either, right? You know, and, and they haven't had the furnace maintained, and, mm-hmm. and they're doing the bare minimum as far as maintenance is concerned. They're not cleaning carpets. They're not repairing things and replacing things um, because they're probably struggling to keep those those bills going. And that does, across the board, lessen the, the condition. And so kind of speaking to that, all foreclosures are as is. Is there any opportunity once you go through inspections, even though the inspections are usually for the buyer's information only, as stated, will they, kind of, will they renegotiate at all? A, 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 upon rare occasion, if it's going to be something that is going to plague the next buyer. So an example would be, Somebody scopes the sewer and mm-hmm. there's three different breaks in it. Like the entire thing has to be replaced. It's going to be $15,000, which is a something like big that. Hit. Or, or a, or a bad septic. Okay. Um, where we obviously know that we have a written report from a soil engineer says that the, uh, the drain field is blah, 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 whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Or even if it's a $3,000 break in the back of a city lot, something like that. Um, if the target buyer is going to be an owner occupant, um, or a fixer upper or something like that type of a type of a buyer, the next person is just going to have the sewer scoped and the next person is just going to come back and complain about the same thing. So in those instances, I would say more than half of my banks would, would probably renegotiate on something like that. Furnace is bad. Doesn't matter. Okay. Go yeah. buy a new furnace. Um, but something that is an, is an obvious hidden defect, something that you had no reasonable way of knowing. Of knowing most of them will be reasonable about that type okay. of thing. Okay. Interesting. All right, cool. So we're kind of coming to the end of the podcast here, but you did mention that you wanted... tired of hearing me talk. <laughs> uh, well, the problem no, is we could talk so forever, but we try yeah, to keep like... them at least below an hour, and we're at 58 minutes now. So, But we wanted to talk about um, now you're starting to sell some of the foreclosures occupied? Yeah, um, that is um, that's something that a couple of banks and lending institutions are are, are starting to do through... Um, their own proprietary websites we're seeing during the eviction process, they want to see if someone's going to buy the property with the person in the house. Okay. And the buyer buys it sight unseen. What you can see from the street is what you're buying. And you take it over with the person in that house and you become the person who evicts that individual. Upon in that case, are you getting a better deal? I mean, is there, there a I discount think that for that? There's more of a substantial reduction at that point off of what you would perceive market value to be. Um, but the thing is, we don't know what market value is because we we've been never inside. been Okay. But then the there's uh, Missouri is a tenant rights state. So what if they're, they signed a lease in a for, and every other in, in a traditional retail standpoint, if you sell that property, the and lease has to, um, it, the lease conveys mm. it. So it passes to the next owner. If in a, Foreclosure instance, does That's the lease unique. convey? Um, well, there was uh, Obama had um, the, the PTFA, Protecting Tenants from Foreclosure Act, uh, which is exactly what you described, that, uh, that those people could maintain their leases if, uh, if, if they wanted to, and that uh, there were different processes by which to remove uh, tenants with, uh, with valid and enforceable leases from properties. As far as the selling occupied, that's a great question and a better one when you guys have an attorney on the uh, okay. on the podcast. It's so interesting because so even with that act, there's like chances for loophole, right? Like, oh, I'll well, sign a hundred year lease with you for a buck a month. Would be, the tenant would have to produce the lease. Like, how can? Because how would we know what the lease terms are? Oh, they definitely would have to, to produce the lease. That's I would what I'm saying. Yeah, the bank there's does your... require, or did at that time at least require. Now, most of the time, tenants. You know, I, I, it really bugs me when I, when I show up and, and there are tenants, and especially tenants with children, and people are like, I pay my landlord every month. Mm-hmm. I've been paying my oh, landlord every no. month for like five years. Yes. Why are they not paying the mortgage? And I'm like, well, 
for the better part of the last year, your landlord's been taking your money and pocketing it for whatever their personal needs are, and they haven't been paying the mortgage. Um, and you can stop giving the landlord any money. Um, and usually they're kind of like, cool, you're on my side and, and you're here to work with me. And then we offer them the cash for keys. And nine times out of 10, the tenants are going to leave anyway because they know that some eviction's coming. They don't want their name in the court mm. um, through any sort of the process. They just kind of want a realistic, hey, what's the time frame associated with us? And and sure, if I can do the cash for keys and find a new place, then most of them, you know. And I'm sure it helps with the deposit, which they're probably not going to get back at this point. Well, same thing with the deficiency balance or go after the person for stealing the kitchen. Uh, the landlords always ask that too. Well, what about my deposit? And I say, well, you can sue the landlord if you want to. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But if the person is the type of person who's going to steal your rent money every month for a year and not pay house the bills with it. On. Mm-hmm. Even if you win in a court setting with this person, you still have to collect that money. And I guarantee you, your deposit is not worth the hassle, the hassle of going after that money. So Ben, how can people get a hold of you if they want to talk to you or whatever? How can people get a hold of you? Uh, I'll give you our website address. It's Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, Realty, R-E-A-L-T-Y, S-T-L dot com, Nichols Realty, S-T-L dot com. Uh, we also have a coming soon section of uh, properties that oh, are that's not exciting. yet listed, uh, but that will be. Um, Is it on your website? Yeah, right on the main page of the website. Uh, kind of uh, top dead center says coming soon. Um, most of them are bank-owned properties. I do put my retail stuff on there because I've got enough web traffic that, hey, why not give my retail clients the same exposure? Sure. But. Um, but most of the stuff on there is, uh, is bank or institutional owned. Um, it will be coming for, uh, for a list and, uh, to the market at some point in time. Again, like we had talked about, could be a year, could be a week. We don't really know at this point, but I'm happy to answer any questions that I, uh, that you've got on those properties and put your name on the folder. If, uh, if they, uh, if they'd like me to give them a ring when they come on. Speaking of questions, I, would ha- I have four questions I'd like to ask you. We kind of ask all of our guests these questions. Okay. If you don't mind. It's like the end of Inside the Actor's Studio where yeah, he does I guess the so. same thing. Okay. All right. Go on. <laughs> so where are you your best? That's a super tough one. Um, probably when I'm speaking. I get invited occasionally by uh, the Young Professionals Network or, or the state has me come to conferences and, and talk every now and again. Uh, sometimes I have the opportunity to to be on uh, agent panels where we get questions fired at us, and I really I kind of enjoy that uh, call and response sort of a thing. This has been a whole lot of fun here today. So good, kind of right now or in a similar situation. How about that? Talking about what you love. There you go. Okay, so do you have a favorite blog or podcast? Other than our podcast, of course. You know, I was going to say yours. No, to be honest with you, I don't. I kind of I work non-stop most of the time and when i'm i'm not working i i try to be uh, unplugged as much as i can okay so i i i like to try to do a follow-up because i always want to get some sort of answer out of you but basically like <laughs> where do you get your news right or like or how do you unplug yeah um i like to uh i like to exercise i go to the lake as much as i can that's kind of my happy place something with a uh something with a view something outdoors something nature oriented I stare at a screen a whole lot, and there's kind of constant interaction with people, as you guys do too. So um, being somewhere surrounded by green and serenity is is kind of my relaxation and release. With regards to news, to be quite honest with you, um, I, I get the very basics and the big stuff I will pay attention to if there's something noteworthy. But, um, but talking heads and the 24-hour media cycle... Um, not from a partisan perspective in any respect, but I just, I just can't handle the, the back and forth and the barking, and I, I just don't. Okay. So, what is your guilty pleasure? Food. Uh, oh, do you have a favorite I, local restaurant? Yay. Top three. Uh, top three. Um, farmhouse uh, there in Love South City. Uh, their tasting menu is is absolutely fantastic. Um. Chop House in Clayton. 801. Oh, 801 love that is, one. Uh, is fantastic. And uh, and two by the same company, I guess I, I would say, at least right now, and it kind of alternates in references, but 801 Fish there across the road is okay. uh, a quality a quality product. But I like to cook. I almost left college about nine times for culinary school and wow. never did. And glad I didn't because I can still have my avocation and cook and do my 
kind of side thing. And well, uh, if you need anyone to uh, eat your creation, Adam <laughs> you and I are often available. Well, we'll hang out again. This has been fun, so we'll we'll certainly do that. What's your uh, fourth question? So, who is your mentor, and how have you thanked them? I had two college professors uh, of whom I was very, very fond. I stay in touch with them uh, regularly online, and we'll talk occasionally. Um, from a real estate perspective, um, my uh, my second broker, uh, Todd Medeshek with Realty Executives, um, I, I think that uh, as, as far as the and, and I hesitate to call them big box because they have a really family oriented feel there. But of the big name firms, if you will, the the uh, the Realty Executives, the Remax, the Keller Williams, the Coldwell Bankers of the world, um, of the big name firms, I think that they have the most personalized type of a uh, agent-friendly, education-focused type of a, uh, a setting. And um, I came from a, a different firm uh, primarily on their offer for, for training, um, and they offered so much of it that I, I probably learned more from that family about how the business works, about uh, the behind-the-scenes of, of how it really works on a daily day, uh, day-to-day basis uh, from, from them than anyone else. And how have you thanked them? Um, I've sent a number of agents to their firm. Uh, we'll catch up every now and again. And, um, but, um, um, gosh, I don't know. Maybe I owe them dinner too. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ben, thank you very much for being on our podcast. Thank you guys. For anybody listening, check out NicholsRealtySTL.com. Send us an email, uh, podcast at HermanLondon.com with any questions or suggestions. And thank you for listening and take care.